hello and welcome to the first episode of Herbert Smith Freehill's new Policy Matter series, this time focusing on the topic of the global energy crisis. I'm Mike Petruk and today I'm joined by Paul Butcher, who is our new Director of Public Policy, who also has a deep background in the energy sector, having worked for nearly 20 years in our energy and infrastructure team. Hi, Paul. Hi, Mike. Paul, I know in my own household, our energy use is increasing as the cold sets in. And as winter 2021-22 fast approaches for the Northern Hemisphere, the word crisis increasingly describes the state the global energy system is in. In this episode, we'll take a look at what has happened, what impact it's been having and what causes have been and what also can be done. The second episode, which of course will be available very soon, will then take a specific look at the global energy crisis from a UK perspective, and we'll call that a very English energy crisis. That's because with over 23 energy supply companies having gone bankrupt so far this year, it's fair to say there are some very specific things happening in the UK market. But back to today's episode topic of the global energy crisis. Paul, could you set out for us at the outset what your key takeaways are before we look into things in a bit more detail, please? Thanks, Mike. Sure. So what we're currently seeing is completely unprecedented. Natural gas and coal prices around the world are at record highs. And for reasons we'll touch on later, this has flowed straight through to record high electricity prices. The consequences of these extreme movements have also been extreme, with heavy energy use industry hit hard even before the Northern Hemisphere gets to winter. And this has led to some pretty unexpected situations, as we'll also discuss. In terms of what's caused this extraordinary situation, firstly, there's what you could term a series of unfortunate events with several aggravating extreme weather and supply events happening. Secondly, there are the perhaps surprising consequences of the pandemic and new ways of living and working. Thirdly, there have been some geopolitical factors, the biggest being Russia. Finally, though, is what I think is the underlying reason for the crisis, which has allowed the series of unfortunate events and the other factors to tip us over the edge into a crisis. And that's the failure of global policymaking over many years to effectively manage the admittedly very challenging transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. Policymakers have had some success undermining investor confidence in greenfield fossil fuel projects but they've been much less successful at offering the mix of incentives and certainty to support the investor confidence in clean energy that's required to ensure energy security. I should say though that it's not just me that's reached this conclusion, it's the conclusion that the International Energy Agency arrived at in its recent Energy Outlook 2021 report, which I'd also like to touch on later in the discussion. Thanks, Paul. And yes, let's definitely do that. We'll certainly come back to that. But I'd also like to chat to you about some numbers. Anybody who's listened to my podcast before knows that I like a good stat. You said that the global energy crisis we are facing at the moment is unprecedented. So can you tell me what that looks like in numbers? What's the situation with global fossil fuel prices, for example? Yes. Yeah, so in 2021, it's easy to confuse graphs of global energy markets with the latest cryptocurrency craze. Everywhere you look, there are new record highs and parabolas. So, for example, 
UK natural gas is up six times since October 2020 with record highs. European natural gas is up about five times since the start of the year and seven times compared to September 2020. Again, record highs. Asian liquid natural gas, again, record highs. Chinese coal up two times since April 2021 and more than two times the level reached in at least the last five years. And again, record highs. And finally, Brent crude oil up 50% since April 2021, the highest price since 2018. Well, I did ask for some stats and those really do uh, paint an interesting picture. But oil seems to be a bit of an outlier there with it going up in the last year, but nowhere near record highs like all the other fossil fuels you mentioned. Tell me, why is that? Well, it's because demand for oil is much steadier. The price has, of course, risen a lot this year um, and has been steadily rising. And that reflects the underlying global recovery from the pandemic, sort of very much a macro level response. But what we're seeing with natural gas and coal are the much larger spikes that you get with amplified moves that are associated with seasonality. Demand swings wildly for natural gas and coal during the year due to their use in electricity generation during periods of peak electricity demand, for example, in winter, and for natural gas, of course, for heating our homes. And that's not just in the UK, that's globally. So what the extreme prices for natural gas and coal are signalling are the fears of the shortages to come this winter. That, that's quite a, a frightening prospect. And it, it leads me to ask, what have we seen happen to electricity prices? And if I may as well, you also said in your opening comments that natural gas and coal prices flowed straight through to record high electricity prices. How is that? How does that happen? Yeah, so um, natural gas and coal form the flexible part of the electricity generating capacity for most countries. Of course, we're, we're trying to shift away from both, but that's still true at the moment. And that's because it's very easy to turn on and turn off or to run at any level in between for those power stations. So when that flexible generation is needed, and that's been the case recently, the price of natural gas and coal has a key determining role in the price of electricity. Because of course, the people who run natural gas and coal power stations won't run their stations unless they're going to make a profit from burning the gas or coal. And indeed, we've seen in China what happens when um, there are price caps on what generators can charge. Anecdotally, and of course, this is just purely anecdotally, in China, there have been um, several coal-fired power stations that have simply stopped generating in recent months, claiming maintenance needs rather than to continue operating at a loss. But in countries without the price caps on what generators can charge, instead of supply being cut, it's the prices that have spiked. Can you so, give me some examples of that, Paul? Yeah, sure. So in Germany, France and the UK, the wholesale electricity prices have reached record highs in September and then again in October. For context of just how high those spikes are, they're of course record prices. But for example, the UK day ahead prices of £275 per megawatt hour. 
which is about 10% above German and French equivalents, and nearly seven times the so-called strike price that was awarded at the latest round of contracts for difference auctions that was used to encourage UK low carbon electricity generation. So those prices were set at what was thought to be a fairly generous level at that time to encourage low carbon generation. And yet at the moment, prices are seven times that level. And just finally to show the global context, Japanese electricity prices hit record highs this January even, and then in October, um, they've been continuing to climb back towards similar highs. Thanks, Paul. With all that said, what kinds of consequences have we been seeing for industry and also, of course, for consumers? Well, even before we've got to the winter, um, there's already been severe implications. In September and October, China's industrial sector has been hit hard by power outages. In September, their factory activity fell to its lowest level since lockdown in February 2020. Goldman Sachs has estimated that 44% of China's industrial activity has been hit by outages. In the UK, several rail freight companies have had to switch back to diesel locomotives from electric due to the electricity prices. And a, a, an example that's become famous in the UK um, is a company called CF Fertilizers, which makes fertilizers, you might guess. But they had to pause production because natural gas prices made it uneconomic. Although actually their business was perfectly healthy, they just decided to pause. However, um, CO2 is a byproduct of fertilizer production. And this company usually supplies 60% of the UK market in CO2. And it soon transpired, um, apparently to the surprise of the US chief executive, as much as anyone else, that the various UK supply chains, for example, food packaging, that were completely dependent on the CO2, were brought to a very serious situation. So the UK government actually took the very unusual step to agree a short-term deal to ensure that they would keep going. And this highlights what has been happening a lot this year, not just in the energy sector, where supply chains have been exposed really to the public um, at large um, as to how, how dependent they are on factors which, which um, hadn't been apparent before and how fragile they are. So as winter approaches, what's likely to be uh, the approach from uh, large industrial energy users? Well, many of these um, energy intensive industries across Europe have already been rationing production or or even halting operations. Uh, but as winter approaches, it's increasingly likely that large industrial energy users will actually be required to cease operating in order to protect priority end users, such as hospitals and consumers, in exceptional circumstances um, in order to balance the transmission systems. And of course, higher energy prices are also feeding through to households. Many jurisdictions have measures in place to mitigate the impact on the most vulnerable. So what tools do they have at their disposal? Well, the tools they have include price caps, temporary tax breaks, vouchers and subsidies. 
and those same tools could be used to help business. Um, but we're we're seeing um, at the moment how how governments will react, and they're having to react quickly. So, Paul, with that in mind, then what's caused this global energy crisis? In your opening words, you mentioned a series of unfortunate events. Talk to us about them. So. 2021 has had um, several aggravating extreme weather and supply events, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'll give you um, a few just to give you a flavour. So it all sort of 2021 got off to a bad start from that perspective with a very cold winter in Japan, China and South Korea. And that led to localised shortages and LNG prices hitting an all time high. And then in February, Texas was hit by one of the worst winter storms in modern history. That led to unprecedented demand for electricity and natural gas with rolling power cuts. And at the same time, that weather hit Texas's gas production with their exports plummeting. For Europe, there were very low wind speeds from April to June. In fact, it was the, the third worst quarter in 22 years in the North Sea for wind, according to Orsted, which is the world's largest offshore developer. And that led to much greater flexible gas fire generation in the UK and continental Europe than would usually be the case at this time of year. And in China, uh, more recently, it was announced on the 9th of October that heavy rains had forced the closure of 60 coal mines in the Shaanxi province mines in such a large area that's huge you also mentioned though that the surprising consequences of the pandemic uh, and new ways of living and working um, would have a huge effect what's what's that about well firstly we've had the fall in global energy demand from the pandemic which is about four percent perhaps less than than some would expect but that fall is now over and we're back now to a higher level than we were before. But in terms of ongoing behavioural effects, hybrid working, which of course a lot of us are doing now, means that some days people work at home and some days they work in the office. And this is having an impact on the amount of heating and cooling that we're doing. Now overall, this might actually lead to less energy being used due to less personal transportation. But in terms of the impact on natural gas, coal and electricity, hybrid working is likely exacerbating the current energy crisis. That is certainly a sobering thought. And also, of course, another major issue are the uh, geopolitical factors. Uh, Tell me a little bit about uh, those. So the 6th of October actually gave us a, a real sort of real time insight into how much geopolitics plays into this. That's because there were massive gyrations on the European wholesale gas prices that day, with intraday records of over 10 times the prices at the start of the year. Now, those gyrations happened around comments from President Putin. Those comments halted huge price spikes that had been happening up until then. So just to give you the, give you the numbers on what happened that day, On the 6th of October, the European market opened near 130 euros per megawatt hour and peaked at over 160 megawatt hours just prior to President Putin speaking. And after he spoke, they fell to 100 megawatt hours. 
And for the UK, they opened at £3 a firm, peaked at £4, but then were back down to less than £3 after President Putin spoke. So what did President Putin say? Well, he said the following. Let's think through possibly increasing supply in the market. Only we need to do it carefully. Settle with Gazprom and talk it over. Now, that's not the most firm commitment um, to increasing <laughs> gas supply, but that was enough, as you as you just heard, to move the market enormously. Now, Russia has apparently met its long-term contractual commitments for the supply of natural gas to continental Europe, and it also has its own storage facilities that it needs to fill for winter. But following President Putin's comments, the IEA told the Financial Times that its analysis showed that Russia could increase exports by roughly 15% of peak winter supply, which would make an enormous difference. And Russia is seen by many to be drawing a link between the approval it wants for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline by the German government and regulator, and the likelihood that Russia would increase gas exports to Europe. Now, as of the time of our discussion today, Gas supplies to Europe from Russia have not yet increased substantively. But it was reported a few days ago that Russia would start pumping gas into European storage sites as soon as it had finished filling its own storage facilities, which, if true, would start in the next few days. But we still wait to see what will actually happen. Thank you, Paul. And, and finally, you also said in your opening remarks that the energy crisis was ultimately a failure of global policymaking. Can you tell us why you said that? Yes, so it is, of course, completely true that a combination of post-pandemic recovery, extreme weather, geopolitics have all played a role in the current crisis. And to be fair, without those, we wouldn't have a crisis. But in terms of the underlying cause which allowed those events to then be decisive in causing an energy crisis is a failure of policymaking over many years around the world to effectively manage the admittedly very challenging transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. So the International Energy Agency's World Energy Outlook 2021, which was published just on the 13th of October, said that the world is not investing enough to meet its future energy needs. And that's what's behind the lack of security of supply. So at the same time that the world is failing to make the necessary new investments in clean energy for net zero by 2050, and to meet the rising demand for energy, the amount invested in oil and gas has been dragged down by the two price collapses recently for 2014, 2015, and again, obviously, with the pandemic. In a world which is now shifting towards falling demand for those fuels. So what the IEA is saying is rather than going back and doing more fossil fuels, we need to move forward with the energy transition, with the deployment of clean energy technologies and infrastructure to get out of this current situation, and that it needs to happen quickly, with policymakers offering clear signals and direction for that to happen. Crucially, 
the investment has to be flexible with robust grids, battery storage and dispatchable low emission sources of electricity. Paul, that's been hugely fascinating. One final question. Uh, do you have a final thought that you want to leave us with? Well, with um, COP26, I would just say that that does offer a chance for politicians to commit to concrete steps that will provide the framework for investment that moves us from energy limbo to energy transition. And of course, that doesn't just require statements at COP26, but then quite quickly following through with the necessary legislation. And I'd also just flag um, the COP26 hub that we have on the Herbert Smith Freehills website. Thanks very much, Mike. Thank you, Paul. And if you found this podcast useful, do please look out for our second episode, which will focus on the global energy crisis from a UK perspective. Of course, if you've got any questions, please also get in touch with Paul via paul.butcher at hsf.com. Thank you. Thanks, Mike.